there's something in the water here that uh, is producing the most startups per capita, the most VC dollars spent per capita, the most unicorns per capita by a lot. Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay Ventures. Today, we have Yaron Samit on the show. Yaron is the founder of Tech Aviv, a community for leading Israeli entrepreneurs. And Yaron himself is a serial entrepreneur with numerous successful exits. He was born in Israel, grew up in the States, and is now back in Israel to drive innovation. We discuss how Israel has become one of the world's most innovative countries, and we discuss what he plans to do next. Enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Venwise. Venwise is a curated community of high-growth leaders. It's isolating being a leader, but it doesn't have to be. Through Venwise, you can join discussions and gain support from fellow C-level executives at high-growth tech companies. If you're interested, apply by visiting venwise.com. Yaron, thank you for being on the show today. Mark, my pleasure. This is officially my earliest recording session. Uh, it's 8 o'clock here, and you're in Israel. What time do you have? It is 3.15 in the afternoon. Thank God, it's here a lot more awake than I am. Okay. Before we jump into all the interesting stuff you're doing today, I'd love to drive a little bit through your background. So could we start? Where did you grow up? So uh, you might have guessed from my name, which you probably can't uh, pronounce if you just see it written down somewhere. But um, I was born in Israel, um, but very early on, I moved with my family to uh, the States. I grew up right outside of Washington, D.C. How old were you when you moved? Three and a half. Okay, so you were really young, right? Yeah. You don't have much in the way of an accent. I don't. I mean, I speak Hebrew fluently, so we can do this interview in, uh, in Hebrew if you like. It'll How's be a one-sided con conversation, unfortunately. <laughs> okay. Um, and so, yeah, I grew up in the States, uh, always knowing that I, I'd go back to Israel at some point. Um, but my, so my, uh, my education and my, my professional career were all between... Um, Maryland, New York, and Silicon Valley. Uh, I did a stint where I, I went to Israel and I studied at our local uh, MIT sister school, which is called the Technion. Um, and uh, eventually I ended up back in Israel, made Aliyah five years ago. Okay, fantastic. I want to explore all of that. Uh, now, I saw you went to Maryland for college and I was going to ask when you came to the States, if you came later, I was going to try to understand that. But it sounds like that's a natural progression for a local boy and over to Maryland. Yeah, so I, I wanted to be close to my parents. I think that, that, that was the extent of that decision-making was just wanting to be local. Right. Um, and funny story, I come from a lineage of, uh, of great academics and engineers and chemists, um, biologists, etc. And all the males in my family were engineers. And so I went to Maryland to study engineering. And within a few months, I realized very quickly, not only do I suck at being an engineer, I really hate it. Right. And so I, I literally failed out, like flunked out of engineering school year wow. one and kind of did a reboot on my, uh, my academic life, left Maryland to go study uh, uh, at the Technion for a year in Israel. I always knew I wanted to go back. I wanted to do the army, that kind of thing. And uh, so my, my kind of... Uh, Academic career took a hard right from engineering to, um, I studied like 
project management and product management and marketing and so forth. And that led me to kind of more of a business career. Uh, I went back to Maryland to finish my degree and it was in like some literally a BS degree <laughs> in uh, just business administration, marketing. Right. That was my undergrad. But you found a way because, you know, tech is now such a prevalent industry to marry yeah. the engineering roots, at least a little bit, with your business skills. This is, this is dumb luck. I, I graduated in 95, which you're old enough to remember was pretty much the birth of the web. Yeah. Right? And so um, with a marketing degree, the very first job I got out of, uh, out of college was in New York City being a, a junior account executive at Edelman Public Relations. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I quickly found out that I suck at being an employee and I hate corporate America. <laughs> and within four months, I got fired. Now, why I got fired is very, is very relevant for defining the, the, the rest of my career, which is, uh, and this is a quote, by the way, the, the boss who fired me as she was kicking me out the door said, you're just too creative for this place. Huh. And what she meant was um, I wouldn't do things the way they were normally done. So right. I don't know how much you want me to go into this story, but. Uh, I'd love to hear it because that, that, I think this is actually a common thread. A lot of the uh, innate entrepreneurs, I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs who made a career decision and they had business skills and they applied them and built companies. But people who are wired at their core as entrepreneurs, I think can very often make terrible employees. No, it, it's, it's more a function of who you are than what you do. Um, by the way, I, I now lecture worldwide and at universities. This is pre-corona, obviously. And, the, and I start my lecture on entrepreneurship by, by basically trying to convince everybody in the room not to do it. And I give them all the reasons why it's just a really bad idea. Um, and then I look around the audience and I see the one or two kind of shining eyes of the folks who go, yeah, but that just doesn't apply to me. All that logic doesn't apply to me. I'm the outlier. And I, the thought of going to work for a boss who will tell me what to do all day long is just so repulsive to these people, or they're just so not good at it, that they have no option but to be themselves, which is a kind of a creative spirit, somebody who builds a tomorrow that they would want to see rather than being told what to build. So. The really quick story of what happened at Edelman was, um, so at the University of Maryland, I, uh, while I was flunking out of engineering school, I um, spent my hobby time down in the, in the basement of a parking lot where we had our computer, uh, open computer uh, lab. And there was a bunch of geeks down there, like just messing around with like HTML and stuff. And I taught myself HTML just for the fun of it. And by the way, the, the interesting part of that, era in maryland one of the geeks sitting next to me was a guy named sergey brin sergey yeah i've heard of him so he uh another kind of uh israeli connection there he went on obviously to, to found google um did okay uh and i went to go work at edelman public relations uh but when i was told that every single morning at 9 a.m when i get up into that 33rd floor you know Times Square, you know, ball dropping building uh, with my suit and tie, I would have to take a pair of scissors and I would have to cut out the clippings of our clients so that we could put them in a book and, and, and show it to the clients, all the great press they got because of what we've done for them. And I was like, really? 
that's you use this is 1995 there's this thing called the internet and i wrote a little page where i like a bunch of iframes where i had like all the big search engines at the time if you might recall yahoo alta vista magellan lycos exactly uh google i don't think was even around and i would type in my client's name hit the print button and get all these results of like news stories about our clients staple it put my feet up on the desk this brash you know 23 year old at the time and was like look what i did and all these other you know junior account executives were sitting there with their scissors now i thought they'd be impressed my boss literally said that's really cool now go back and finish the clippings because i was done in two minutes right the other the other folks were working for an hour i was done in two and so he's like, you got another 58 minutes. Why don't you go uh, do some clippings? And I was like, you got to be kidding me. That doesn't make any sense. My results are better. I did it in two minutes. Why doesn't everybody do it this way? And she was like, go back and do the clicking, clippings. That same day, I went to somebody else at the company, the CIO, to complain. He told her, and I was fired the same day. That's amazing. Best thing that has ever happened to me professionally. Okay, so you talked about being a nerd going down to the basement and you know, hacking and teaching yourself code next to Sergey Brin, but that wasn't totally your profile. And I think uh, hearing your story, there's a lot of duopoly going on, right? You're this, in, you're an engineer, but not an engineer in business. You're a nerd, but you were also the captain of the volleyball team. Yeah, right? that's not a typical nerd profile. So tell me, how did uh, being an athlete affect your career path? Uh, well, first of all, it gave me a social life. Like I got out of the basement to play volleyball, and uh, that kind of uh, takes your your ability to socialize with other humans to another level. And I think that's probably one of the most important things you need to do. Certainly, as a founding CEO, you need to be a people person. Um, you need to actually have the skills to to lead. Um, and uh, I got that from from very much from being. Um, the captain of that team. It was my sport throughout uh, from high school. I ended up playing like in the junior Olympic team. And uh, yeah, I, I, I honed my leadership skills there. Um, I wouldn't say I was a coder. I, I mean, I taught myself basic HTML uh, in the basement at a time where that was just like all you needed for building a website. So I just wanted to kind of tinker around with building websites. Uh, that, by the way, that skill is what led me when I was fired that, that day. Um, and I think this is quite, this is telling of an entrepreneur. I wasn't bummed about getting fired. I was like, wow, what a great opportunity. Like, I hated that job. I was only four months into it, but I hated it. And I kind of picked up a newspaper, looked at the classified ads, and there was an, uh, an ad for an internet company that needed somebody who knew how to kind of build basic websites. And I was like, I, I actually know how to do that. Um, and so I applied and got the job. That company um, at the time was called Foreman Interactive working out of like a warehouse in Brooklyn. That company turned into register.com. Amazing. Went public, multi-billion dollar company. I was employee number four doing marketing and building websites. That's amazing. You are uh, a leader type personality. I've known you long enough. You were talking about it, you know, early with the volleyball experience. It's obvious when you're speaking now, right? Not everyone is that. And not every entrepreneur is extroverted or dominant. Uh, you and I are both community builders. 
Uh, what about the people out there who are maybe not going to be leaders of communities, but are entrepreneurs? They're wired for it. Just is, is joining a community enough? What types of communities should they seek out? How can they get comfort and knowledge and context around being an entrepreneur without quitting their day job? So first of all, it's a super important point, and it goes back to what I was saying about self-awareness. Be okay with your strengths and weaknesses. Understand, if you're not that kind of person who likes to be in the front like you and I, and you know, uh, um, you're not comfortable in that role, don't force it. You don't have to be. There are many roles uh, that come into play to building a company. The CEO role is just one of many. And if you're the CTO or the CMO or the CPO or whatever it might be, the janitor, it's so important for you to be true to who you are because you are the best in the world at being that person. You, okay? And so play to your strength. In the case of uh, you know, community building, if that's not comfortable for you, if you don't like to get up on stage and talk and stuff like that, be in the audience. Join the other communities. You know, go to a meetup locally or a webinar now, you know, COVID days, and uh, just start, you know, being a, a true contributor to that community. You can share online, you can post, you can do whatever you want. You don't have to be in the front. But just being a, a contributor builds up this network inherently that you will learn from, you will give to, and when you're ready to start your company, you're going to have your potential co-founder from that community your first hires, your first customers, your first partners, your potentially your first investors. And that's something that you can start like years before you actually launch your company. And if you do so, it's that much easier to so build easier. a company. It's fantastic advice. I'd add one thing to it. Uh, I started a entrepreneurship community for Columbia University. And one of the main objectives was that I saw so many people who are talented, bright, passionate, would-be founders following a path that everyone else is on to Wall Street or consulting. And that's not a bad path. It just wasn't right, the right path for them. And I think part of the reason they chose that path was because it was scary to go alone, to do something different without context, without basic understanding. Uh, and so my hope with this community I started, which I think it's had the impact, is a lot of entrepreneurs they come, they don't know what they're getting into, they're doughy-eyed, uh, they hear other people like you talking, they find other friends who are on the same journey. It's just a hell of a lot less scary if you have people alongside you taking the same steps, and people you've seen fail, and that's okay, and people you've seen succeed, and that's great. So I, I think the community path is, is magic for a lot of folks out there. There's one more piece of magic that happens at those community events, okay? I've actually coined a, a, an acronym for it. It's EC, okay? There's VC, which is venture capital. You need to raise some money to, to build a company. But there's only one thing that kills a company, and that's when the founders run out of EC. EC is emotion capital, mm. okay? You are doing the impossible. The only you know, fuel in your engine is that you have the emotion to actually take action to try, and then when you hit walls and you're gushing with blood in the face, you actually walk around the wall and keep going. That emotion capital, that fuel for the car that creates eventually a company is something that you can fuel up on when you're hanging around 
fellow men and women in the arena. When you realize that they're in the trenches and they're going through the slog and dealing with all the you know deep psychological up and down of trying to be an entrepreneur, you you fill up with that emotion capital, that EC, and you come home and you spend that extra hour that night working on your you know PowerPoint deck. I love that. It's super important. I love that. And you know you're hitting on something that keeps coming up is founder depression, right? The anxiety founders feel, uh, I think it's outsized to what a lot of people are exposed to with more stable work environments, right? One week, the future's bright, and the next week, it's very bleak. Yeah, and, and you're, I think you're associated uh, with yourself. Yeah, and there's a psychological toll. So you think community is a good way to help mitigate some of that roller coaster? 100%. Like you see fellow crazies, and you see that they're going through it you know, in the same way that you are. It's not what you re- you'll read on TechCrunch about this founder raised that much money and this exit was that big, which is all so amazing. But when you get into these communities where these you have a safe place where you can talk real talk with fellow founders, you realize that the vast majority of the time you're failing. And the psychology, is it cuts so deep because it basically is a reflection on you. You failed. There is no company. It's you in the beginning. So your idea is stupid. You're not a good operator. You didn't hire the right people, et cetera, et cetera. And that's very hard to take, constantly getting rejection. Um, if you do it together and you, you realize that everyone's getting rejected, it kind of normalizes the impact. Yeah. Very important. Yeah. Very powerful stuff. I know you started off on the marketing side of the house. Do you think that's a good place for would-be founders, CEOs to cut their teeth? I, I do actually. So this is a little bit of a contrarian uh, uh, take. Most, you know, uh, most people in the tech world will say you want to find two technical founders or you know tech folks who can build some proprietary IP. I, I'm of the belief that you need to be uniquely astute at understanding the market before you even consider building anything for it. And marketers. I mean, that's our jobs. You know, uh, we're supposed to understand what the market demands, and then we need to fill that demand. It's pretty simple of a formula. You need to build something that people actually care enough to want. And understanding what people want is, uh, is a function that a lot of technical co-founders just don't have. They can build amazing widgets, but most often people just don't care. Uh, and so along that lines, you know, my, the, the my career was more of a product manager than uh, just a pure marketing person. But as I uh, developed my career, became a CEO, build organizations, I always had product management report into marketing, not into R&D. Interesting. Because you want the ability to, to first and foremost develop a product that people care about. And so I actually think having that skill set is, is quite an advantage. And that's the customer development that's the brand, the label that's been put on that philosophy, right? And so, yeah, customer validation, which is the very first step of building a company, you just want to validate that there will be some people or some organizations who will care enough to even try your product and then maybe use it and then maybe pay for it. That's step one, you know, before you, know, this, you do anything else. That is fantastic advice. Uh, and now you're a serial entrepreneur. I know that. Uh, the people listening probably don't know everything about you. Can you walk us through some of the companies you've started? Sure. 
Um, so, I mean, I had a few real jobs. Like I said in the beginning, I was at Register.com running marketing. Then I joined a company called BackWeb and ran product management. Uh, then I joined a company called Zend, the PHP company. It was VP marketing. Um, my very first company that I started was called Fan Networks. It was back in 2001 where, you know, Napster and Scour, all these like illegal file sharing apps were around and, and the music industry was basically crumbling. Um, and I had this idea for creating a piece of software that the record labels could put on their CD, the physical CD that you'd have to buy. And only if you bought the CD and you popped it into your computer, then you would get exclusive tracks and and uh, commentary and video from the artists, et cetera. It was like a kind of vertical MTV channels for artists. I called it Fan Networks. And um, very, very early on merged with another company. This is about building a community and talking to other people in the space. Met another company called DeskSite, but they were ahead of me. They had funding, they had a team, and we merged. And so that became DeskSite Music. That was my first company that I co-founded. Um, the next company was born from the limitation of that business, the fan networks business, which was we were monetizing with ads, but back in 2000, it was so expensive to deliver rich media from server to client. And so I, inspired by those peer-to-peer -peer companies that were basically moving bits around the internet in a more efficient way, I built uh, a legitimate enterprise peer-to-peer -peer CDN, content delivery network, that could use peer-to-peer -peer networking to move files legitimately for people and businesses. And uh, that company was called Pando, uh, grew very quickly to tens of millions of users, uh, was acquired by Microsoft. And then the company right after that was BillGuard, which was uh, my most recent company. It was in the fintech space. It's a personal finance management tool that used crowdsourcing to identify uh, overcharging, uh, you know, wrongful charges and overspending on your credit card bills. Um, kind of like how computers can find what a bad email is by all these people clicking market spam in their own inboxes. Right. We did the same thing for credit card bills. And that became one of the most popular personal finance apps, in both the Google and the, and the, in the Apple uh, stores, uh, app stores, and was acquired by Prosper at the end of 2015. And uh, yeah, those are the three companies that I founded as a as a founding CEO. I've also helped start two more companies as a founding board director. One of them out of New York called Pond Five. Yeah, you probably remember that company. Mm -hmm. And uh, and uh, CloudLock um, out of Boston, which was acquired by Cisco. Um, so I've been, uh, been involved with helping build five companies, been very, very lucky Four of those companies were acquired, um, a lot of luck involved, been around the block enough, had enough failures to get lucky a few times. You, you've had a tremendous amount of success on the entrepreneur side. Uh, you've made some career moves. You, uh, you, you moved back to Israel. Things have changed. Uh, when did you go back to Israel? When did that happen? It was uh, three days ago, plus five years. So we yeah. <laughs> not that you're counting. Yeah, exactly. It was uh, January fourth, two thousand sixteen. We moved back to Israel after selling Billgard. Interesting. Okay. And uh, what drove you back? You know, it sounds like you grew up in the states more or less. Yeah. So um, Israel is my home. Uh, you could take me out when I was three and a half, but you couldn't take. The Israeli from from within deep in my heart. Um, I always sort of knew. I always felt like an Israeli living in America. I've always been very connected to the Israeli uh, tech community in particular. Um, 
and I I knew I wanted to come back at some point. The 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 catalyst was was my wife. Um, mm. I'm uh, I'm very lucky to ma- to have married an amazing Israeli a woman who her whole family is here, and we knew that after she would let me play startup for a while in the states, once I would uh, sell Billgard, we would be coming back, and so uh, that is that is definitely you know kind of the catalyst for the timing. And I'm really happy about it because I, I have three young kids uh, today, a 13-year-old, a 10-year-old, and an 8-year-old. Beautiful. And having them grow up Israeli kids, uh, you can only really understand what that means if, you, if you've lived in Israel uh, and have Israeli kids. It's, it's a real, I'm very fortunate to have them be able to, to grow up here. So that was a big, those are kind of the main reasons for, for coming back. Um, I also now play an important role here in the local tech community. So I'm very uh, privileged to to be at the right place for myself professionally as well. Yeah, take us through that. So you started Tech Aviv, right? And that's something you started when you were in New York, correct? Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, the first iteration of that as a community? Sure. So very much inspired by how I started the New York video meetup. Uh, I wanted to gather fellow Israeli founders um, and learn from each other and help each other out. Um, and so back in the summer of 2007, I organized some fellow founding CEOs who were Israelis living in New York. And we would just do a coffee shop meeting once a month. Same idea, very candid, open, safe space where you could talk to fellow founders about all the stuff you're going through. And uh, that that group today has become the largest um, global organization of Israeli founders in the world. But more importantly than its size, because of the way we grew, so we wanted to really protect that safe place, that safe space. And so we kind of grew YPO style in order to be invited in. An existing member would have to recommend you. And so we just skewed to a uniquely high quality cohort of uh, founders. 35 unicorns have emerged from this group. That's incredible. Um, majority of them joined when they were pre-seed or pre-company. Um, we have over 200 companies that are valued well north of 100 million. And uh, till this day, it's a non-profit, informal, global network of Israeli founders who kind of get together, now more online than offline, but usually offline. Major branches are like in uh, Tel Aviv, New York, Silicon Valley, and Boston. But we have members in 16 cities around the world. And we were... We, the whole idea here is to kind of harness our collective knowledge as entrepreneurs and our networks in order to help each other succeed. That's the whole spirit of the thing. And it's really turned into a very powerful network. Yeah, and it, it, it succeeded in no small part because of you, right? You have an enigmatic leadership style, which I think comes across even into this conversation. What did you learn about community management through the development of Tech Aviv? that other people should know, people who are going to follow your advice to go out and build communities of their own? What are trade secrets or strategies or things that they should understand or think about to be successful in that community building skill? That's a really important question, by the way, because a, a lot of people are building communities these days, a lot of tools to do that online. Um, I, I think the most important lesson, uh, it's like foundational lesson, 
of Tech Aviv is that the way it was started and until today, the way it is run, I, I guess, set a tone that this was a giving network. I don't know if you read Adam Grant's book, Give and Take. I have if not. you haven't, highly I have recommend that okay, book. We'll, Maybe we'll link, link to that to in it. the show notes. Give and Take, yeah, by Adam Grant. Um, Tech Aviv is a giver network. The, the, the idea is that when you join into this network, it's about what can you give to others? How can you help others? Not what can you get from it? Um, and so when I started it, it wasn't like, what can I get out of starting a, a global network of Israeli founders? It was just wanting to give back. Um, and when you, as the leader of a community, set that tone, it's kind of like, okay, that's the modus operandi. That's how we function here. Um, there is no, there's no fee for being a member. There's no f- financial interest here. There's no big corporate above us who is like trying to, you know, scoop up some innovation, whatever. It's just a bunch of founders who get together to help each other out. When you set that tone, you define your ethos. Ethos is a glue that binds you, whether you're three, uh, three founders meeting at a coffee shop or you're 3,000 members worldwide. It's just kind of the tone. Um, it's the identity of the brand and the, and the network. And so then everybody kind of defaults to, wow, everybody's giving. Kind of, okay, I should too. And right. one of the, I think one of, one of the ways this manifests itself and one of my favorite parts of our, our meetings when we get together is at the end of every um, gathering, we, we do member announcements where any member can kind of stand up and say, here's, here's help that I need. And then typically we'll have 100 or 200 other founders in the room who will then say, oh, I can help you with that. Or I can help you with that. People will just raise their hand to say how, how they can help. And then we just match make between them and they kind of talk offline. I cannot, I wish I would have quantified this over the years, but the amount of hiring, business development, fundraising, M&A, you name it, advisory, like help that founders have provided each other through that, that framework, which by the way, it's the most meaningful thing I've done in my career. I've built a bunch of tech companies. I've, I've been fortunate and made, made some money. Um, the most meaningful thing that I have built in my life are these frameworks that enable founders to help each other, where I don't have to be, I'm not the middleman. I do, I'm an accidental connector because I'm in the middle, I'm the human router sometimes connecting the dots. But when you, when you create that environment where everyone's just helping each other, that is exponentially more powerful. And so if you're starting a community today, don't think about what you can charge for membership or what kind of sponsorships you can bring on or Think about what can you give to others and just give. Don't think about where you're going to get back, what credit you'll get for it, et cetera. Just give and you will get in return tenfold. My professional career has been built on the help of people in the communities that I've helped facilitate. It's very powerful advice. I received the same advice from a different person, uh, a mentor of mine early in my venture career. The phrase he used was, the more you give, the more you get, but don't keep score. That's actually, yeah. by the way, you'll read that in the book as well, uh, give and take. You don't want to be a matcher. There's three people that Adam Grant talks about, a giver, a taker, and a matcher. Um, the givers are always, when they, whenever they interact with a fellow human being, they think, okay, what can I, how can I help? The taker always thinks, hmm, what can I get from this person I'm interacting with? And the matcher goes, okay, I'm willing to give you something, but I'm taking you know, a mental note of what I'm going to get back in return equally. Mm-hmm. And they're constantly keeping score so that there's an equal give and take. And what the book explores is how the most successful people in the world are, are givers. But there's a way to do that. So 
yeah, that would be that would be my main advice if you want to start a community. Be authentic. Don't think about what you can get from it. Give first. That's awesome. Tech of Eve has evolved. Yep. Right. It's no longer just a community. You're about to give a worldwide scoop, by the way. We haven't announced this anywhere yet. Well, it's on your website. It's quietly on our website. It's not, not been quietly. If I I'm can happy see to it. do it, by the way. Okay, you well, know, good. We're... Pending the air date, I'm happy to talk about it here. This will literally no, be. Well, this, this, you got about a month we'll lead time first. from this conversation to be it being public. Um, yeah. But uh, let's explore it, then we can figure out timing with you afterward. <laughs> no, no, no. It's totally fine. We are, you know, we are live. So it says on your website some important news. What is that news? Um, so there's a tiny link on the Tech Aviv website which says fund. Yeah. <laughs> it's not an announcement yet, but um, we have quietly put together a founders fund. Um, because of the unique position we are in having kind of assembled this global network of prolific founders. Like, Talk about all those unicorn founders. By the way, another dozen public company CEOs now. Um, we have what I consider to be a, a responsibility to harness that knowledge of scaling up companies and helping fellow founders, you know, go that distance rather than just building another cool widget to flip to Google. And that's a big part of our mission at, at Tech Aviv. And so what we decided to do is create um, a founders fund where we could also provide the very first checks to entrepreneurs who are going after um, companies that their goal is to make massive impact, to be enduring, to be you know IPO caliber companies, not just another cool tech product. And um, we are collectively scouting for those uh, entrepreneurs. We're focused as a as a fund because we're an Israeli founders club. We're focused as a founders fund on Israeli founders. Um, and the idea is we provide pre-seed and seed checks. And far more importantly than the checks, we provide um, access to all of us to tap into our not only our, our knowledge and our experience, but also our networks to your first customers, to your hiring your first talent, to meeting your, your first uh, investors, and uh, literally helping with whatever the founders need um, to succeed. We're called the Tech Aviv Founder Partners. That's because we partner with founders. We don't partner with ventures. Um, money is the least valuable asset we bring to the table. We happen to be structured as a fund, but we are not a traditional fund. We're very much a network. Uh, I'm really, really excited by the way it came together. Some remarkable people um, who are industry leaders, CEOs of top companies, um, but who are uniquely generous with their time in helping fellow founders. Uh, it was, by the way, going to be a small fund, just a few founders. Word kind of got out that we're doing this, and there was a lot of enthusiasm to join us. And so we've expanded it a bit. We've also added some senior executives and CEOs from top tech giants uh, like Google and Facebook and Amazon, Uber, et cetera. Um, and there's also uh, several top-tier uh, venture capital funds that are also invested in us. But everyone that comes into the network is signing up to help the portfolio companies that we back build big companies. That's the idea. Is this your next chapter? So um, I see it as a natural extension of the Tech Aviv network. Um, this is a for-profit entity. So it's a venture capital fund. Um, 
but it's very much built in the spirit and the same ethos of, you know, collectively helping uh, fellow founders. So yeah, it's very much the evolution. I don't know if it's a chapter, but it's an evolution of myself. Mm-hmm. And I reached a, a phase in my career where I'm more excited about being a coach than being a player. It took time. Like if you would have asked me a couple of years ago if I would have ever been a VC, I'd probably say no way. Yeah. Um, but I've I've kind of I've really settled into a very happy place with helping other people build companies rather than building my own. There's something with uh, entrepreneurs as we get a little older where we evolve into that role. I remember having a conversation with a VC I had met who had an incredible entrepreneurial journey and become a VC. And I don't know if he was a great VC or not. And I said, why aren't you starting companies? And he said, entrepreneurship is a young man's sport. Does that resonate with you? Well, first of all, uh, the data says otherwise. So recent data has shown that uh, if you take all the, there's 500 unicorns in the world. Yeah. Um, the average age of uh, an entrepreneur who starts a unicorn company, a company valued over a billion dollars, is 45 years old. That's fantastic. 45. So yeah. we still have a chance, uh, Mark. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I got a it's few gotta, years to get started. Back, I'm not ready yet. I'm still in training. <laughs> There you go. So I'm I'm 47. I'm I'm past my prime. Don't admit it. Don't admit it. <laughs> we'll we'll edit that part out. There you go. <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, maybe put like a little number hovering next to me, like 36 or something. Yeah. There you go. Um, so yeah, it, it's uh, it resonates with me personally because I've just gotten to a, a place in my career where I've I've proven to myself that I can build companies. I can I can. Uh, I can operate and I know kind of the inner workings and the messiness of starting a company. Um, but the idea of working on just one product for the next decade of my life versus helping potentially 20 teams build 20 products and 20 important companies that could have a real impact in the world, it just resonates with me personally. I, I'm, I'm happy to be a passenger and not hold the driving uh, wheel uh, at this stage. At a, as a 47-year-old father of three kids who who wants to have a little bit more balance and control of my time uh, at this stage of my life and career, it, it, fits, it fits really perfectly. And I, I have to say, though it wasn't planned this way, spending the last 13 years building this global network of founders helping each other, just, I believe, is such a, um, it's such a powerful way then to build a vehicle for backing those founders in a more structured way. Most VCs, they launch and then they're like, okay, we got to build a community around our fund. Let's do some dinners. You know, let's invite some folks and give out some t-shirts. Uh, that's, that's not a true community, right? That's a financially interested uh, dinner. <laughs> We're a community that happened to add a venture arm to what we do. And I think that's a, it's a very powerful, practical tool to keep doing what we're doing in even a, a more powerful way. You think very deeply, I think, which is obvious at this point in this conversation, about community building. You, you've been doing it for a long time. How would you, and you spent a lot of time in New York and now in Tel Aviv as a mature entrepreneur. How would you compare and contrast the New York entrepreneurial community with the one in Tel Aviv? What's different? What's better? What's worse about each? Wow, what a great question. So, um, and I hate generalizing too much because... We're all human beings, uh, and, and New York is such a 
such a petri dish of humanity. So it's there's not such a thing as a typical New York uh, entrepreneur. Um, by the way, there's hundreds of Israeli founders who are building their companies in New York. Uh, but if I had to kind of like try to high level generalize, I would say there's a there's more of a bend towards like tech, you know, deep tech in Israel. Um, that has to do with kind of like the dynamics of our ecosystem here. And in New York, a little bit more centric around, you know, fintech, media, um, focused on building proper revenue generating businesses. By the mm-hmm. way, that's also very different than Silicon Valley. Right. Silicon Valley is like grow at all costs. Who cares about money and profit? Like just grow. New York is a little bit more sound, I think, from a business perspective. Israel is skewed more to tech, even though it's changing. We're becoming more market centric, better at, uh, at, uh, at, at the business side of building companies as well. So um, it's all kind of meshing together. There is something that is uniquely similar about the eco- ecosystems, which is that we're kind of like brash in your face, you know, uh, no holds barred. We'll tell it like it is. We're New Yorkers, we're Israelis. Uh, what we, you know, what we feel is what we say. And there's an efficiency to that. Sometimes it rubs people the wrong way if a New Yorker is a little bit too brash or an Israeli is too brash. Uh, but I think for entrepreneurship, there's no time for those kind of like sugarcoating conversations. And you want to cut to the chase and you want to be efficient. And I think both ecosystems are very efficient. We fail fast um, because we talk very candidly. Uh, and that's good. You know, as an ecosystem, in order to build a thriving you know, innovation hub, you need to have constantly recycled startups. Mm-hmm. You have entrepreneurs who are trying and failing, trying and failing, trying and failing, joining another startup, et cetera. So you have a deep bench of talent that is thinking in an entrepreneurial way. And then a few companies come out as like massive winners. By the way, I'm really excited about what's happening in New York um, in terms of uh, the quality of, of companies and startups that are being born and staying in New York. In general, by the way, there's a tectonic shift now because of Corona, right? Absolutely. Um, you're not moving to Miami, are you? No, I'm not. But I, I, I think there's been a long pattern of democratization of tech innovation. Yeah, 100%. You know, you and I both know 20 years ago, there was only one place in the world to do it, and it was Silicon Valley 30 years ago. And now we have innovation hubs popping up in Paris, Berlin, London, across the states. Israel's been around for a while, but a lot of these other locations are newer but it's clear the whole world's going to be participating in innovation and i'll add you know um i found a way to articulate this recently i feel like innovation for me is really hope it's the best of mankind it's the best of it's the best path for all of us to collaborate to solve the big problems right so to have more people rowing that boat for the better future it's extremely inspiring to me. I think the democratization of innovation is more important. It's why one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you. Uh, I'd like to pull some insights from this to help people who are building in other cities around the world, to help them see what is working so well in Israel, because you're one, uniquely one of the people who sees it, sitting on top of a, a very large community. Let me emphasize for folks who are listening the significance of Israel's tech community. So... The number is going to be slightly wrong, but I did a little bit of Googling before, the, before our conversation. About 15 to 20% of the unicorns in the U.S. are Israeli-founded. Okay? 
70, 70 companies on the NASDAQ, Israeli founded. Now, to contextualize all this, Israel's population is under 9 million. The U.S. has 330 million people. China has 1.4 billion people. Israel is the third largest country represented on the NASDAQ. Third. It's not even right. close in population. So if you're looking at it on a per capita basis, the innovation output is it's unparalleled. It's absolutely unparalleled. When you look at this dynamic, you know, you talked about the, um, the style of being direct. It's actually a great book for folks listening called The Culture Map. It's a little bit of a slog to read because it's so intelligent and smart. But they do a good, this author does an incredible job of actually diagramming out dimensions of culture in kind of measurable ways. And it talks about things and specifically uses Israelis in some examples about being direct about things that maybe Americans aren't as comfortable with. And it, and it measures this. It puts some context around how to navigate the different cultures. But there, I feel like there has to be more to explain how a small country on a per capita basis is far and away the most innovative. What is, is Israel doing that is creating such an efficient innovation engine? What should anyone in Singapore, Nigeria, anyone listening to this be taking notes and thinking about doing to build their innovation hub to make mankind better? I get asked this a lot um, because you're right. All those numbers, they're, they're astounding, but they're, they're true. Um, there's something in the water here that uh, is producing the most startups per capita, the most VC dollars spent per capita, the most unicorns per capita by a lot, by the way. Um, by a lot. By a lot. There's 45 Israeli-founded unicorns roaming the planet as we speak. Uh, the only reason that number is not growing faster is that <clears throat> several of them have gone public recently. And, and so there's something going on here. Um, and it is, with any phenomena, it is multifaceted. Okay? So there's not one simple answer for you. First of all, in terms of what other governments can do, they can just make um, their their economy more attractive to starting companies. Um, most economies around the world are are very unforgiving uh, of failure. For example, like you, good luck trying to start a company in China and failing after you've like loaned money or raised money from somebody. You are going to have a very hard time doing anything else or getting even a credit card or any kind. Like it's a death sentence. And so it's such a high risk ratio that you're like, I'm not even going to try. Um, in Israel, it's like a notch on your belt of like progress. Like you're impressive if you raised some money, launched a startup, failed, and now you're doing your next one. It looks good on your resume. We know how to read that kind of a resume. That's important that all of the, if you look at the economy from a stack perspective, the banks, the accounting companies, the VCs, uh, the angels, you have a whole ecosystem that is supportive of a startup economy. And another way of saying that is it's supportive of failure. Okay. That is not obvious. It's counterintuitive. Most economies look to always put money and support success. Entrepreneurial economies look to support rapid forward failure. Okay. Uh, Silicon Valley is like the mecca of that, and uh, Israel is very much modeled in that way. It's also part of our culture. Um, so Israelis, because we're very brash, don't have a problem um, questioning authority and saying, okay, 
I understand you're saying that uh, the logic is ABC, but why shouldn't it be CEF? Um, and that is like, that's like cultural, okay? The fact that you have the audacity to question authority and say the world should be different. That's kind of ingrained in our culture. We have it, you'll, you'll go to a school and see a bunch of, uh, you know, uh, K through 12, you know, level-aged kids telling their teacher that the teacher doesn't know what she's talking about. And actually, it should be like that. And I and I I looked it up in Wikipedia and it said that. And what about that? And like arguments, okay? Um, you're not going to have that in most cultures. Um, so that that is double-edged sword sometimes. Like if you're not used to that kind of uh, uh, culture, it can be a bit of a culture shock when you come to Israel. But it's what produces innovation. You have to have diversity of thought. You have to have a, a risk-centric um, culture that is just not afraid of failing and trying and doing things differently than the status quo. Um, we have going back to what a company country could do technically. You go back, you know, to '93. Country was in a terrible situation, inflation, etc. And the government created a program called the Yozma program, which basically said, um, if you can raise some money, and particularly from foreign investors as a company, we will match their investment equally. Go out and get a million bucks for your startup. We'll give you a million bucks. No equity, you know, just free million bucks. And we'll give that foreign investor massive tax incentives to make the investment in Israeli startup. So there's technical stuff that you can do as a government. And hats off to our government for doing that. They recognize very early that we are living in a desert. We don't have any natural resources, oil, nothing. So we need to use our brain power. And in order to power that, that uh, ecosystem of brain power, you need venture capital dollars. And the way they brought foreign money is through these incentives. Okay, very smart. And local governments can do the same. Make it a absolute benefit to start a company and invest in a company locally from a tax perspective, from a funding perspective. Um, there's, a, there's a very, very rich uh, network of accelerators, hubs, co-working spaces. Um, you know, it's the vibe when you walk down Rothschild Boulevard in Tel Aviv is the same thing as if you're walking down University Ave in Palo Alto. You know, there is entrepreneurs in every coffee shop talking about their next big idea. And uh, they can go to a co-working space and work together, or they can, you know, go to an accelerator that will give them money for no equity, okay? Like Mass Challenge, for example, which is actually from the U.S. Yep. Uh, That's a Boston-based program for... Boston-based yeah, program, right? And like, here's some money and you just go do some customer validation. Like, we have those kind of resources available to young, smart people who want to start companies. That's a big deal. That, that facilitates a lot of attempts at starting companies. And like I said, you've got to recycle quite a few until you get some winners. Um, we have a very healthy layer of angels. These are smart angels who've started companies. This is already at a later stage after you you have a few generations of polished, seasoned entrepreneurs. Um, they're, they're very connected to the community because we're a small community and they're investing in the next generation. That's very helpful for your first checks. Uh, all that stuff together. And then there's this kind of one big gorilla in the room that uh, everyone always talks about when it's related to Israel, which is the military. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when you're an 18-year-old in the U.S., you're learning how to drink and get laid at college. When you're 18-year-old in Israel, you're going to mandatory draft service. And if you were good in math in high school, they're drafting you, 
okay? Literally, you start getting letters in high school um, for entering into the elite programming units of the Israeli military. And we have several programs that are from, you know, intelligence to cybersecurity to, you know, drones and big data. And uh, when you spend the most formidable years of your life being given impossible assignments, like you're handed a laptop and you're like, okay, figure out how a computer can see through a cloud in order to identify a rocket that could fall on your mom's house. Good luck, kid. Right. And you're like, uh, okay. And you, and you figure that out and you spend three years of your life in that kind of dynamic environment and you become a leader. The last thing you want to do is go work you know, at a big corporation as employee number 15,000. You believe in yourself enough to say, I can try to take my, my, uh, my creative ideas and, and do my own thing. So we also have that assembly line. We also have amazing technical uh, universities, some of the top in the world, the Technion, Hebrew University, um, Weizmann Institute. These are, these are world-class, like MIT, Stanford-level uh, universities for tech talent. So we have a very deep bench of tech talent. It's a, another thing that's super important in, in our particular field. All those things combined um, really enable the ecosystem here. How does someone in another country that maybe doesn't have these cultural norms, government policy, what are the first levers that you think people could start to pull? I know this is not an overnight thing. This is a multi-decade journey. Yeah, but it, it feels increasingly like having a tech platform in a country is going to be a critical success factor for the country going forward. Yeah, right. so you can you can they sort of generate. Yeah, you can you can generate these um, these hubs. Like if you look at what what France did with F Station, um, or in uh, Abu Dhabi uh, with Hub Seventy One. Um, you you have governments putting money into massive open spaces where entrepreneurs can get together, sit together, learn from each other. They can bring in customers and partners and VCs, and you kind of create like a physical space um, for this type of uh, serendipitous knocking into each other and and, uh, seeing what opportunities come up. Um, That's kind of one practical thing you can do. And most governments will look at that and be like, oh my God, it cost me... How many hundreds of millions of dollars to build out that that uh, thing? Forget the money. There's there's no immediate return on investment. It's a long term investment in creating an ecosystem. It's expensive, but you can start. You can build those spaces, and many countries are doing that. By the way, like Brazil is booming right now. Berlin is like crazy. Stockholm, like London. There's many international hubs that have done this very very well and created these kind of like hubs and spaces. That's kind of one practical thing. As I mentioned before, these kind of tax incentives and financial incentives for investors to invest locally, um, they can champion their their companies more internationally. They can tout it. Israel flaunts itself as the startup nation. We've literally been branded by a great book um, called Startup Nation that everyone now refers to Israel uh, using that, that brand. We are the startup nation. The government doesn't miss an opportunity to mention it, you'll hear our prime minister talking about the tech sector and the startup nation any chance he gets in front of any international audience. Um, that's something that governments can also do and say, look, we're building a, a, uh, an innovation economy and an ecosystem here, and this is top priority. We talk about it like we talk about you know, our GDP 
and our renewable energy efforts and whatever it might be uh, at that level. Make it part of your brand identity as a nation. And you'll have to back that up. You can't just talk about it. You'll have to back that up by giving those tax incentives, by investing in universities, um, increasing salaries of you know, public university professors who are teaching computer science, you know what I mean, or product design, et cetera. You're going to have to put money towards this thing and make it a priority so that culturally it becomes like that's who we are. We're also an innovation. It takes a lot of time. It, seeing it in the States, I mean, I, I entered the tech community in New York in 2006. And I feel like it, uh, New York really hit its inflection point in around 2008. But the real story is that I wasn't there at the beginning. There were people working their ass off in New York in the 90s building. There was an earlier generation. And it takes cycles of these people to grow up, to succeed, to mature, to become angel investors and mentors. It's not an overnight exercise. This is a 30 or 40 year journey is my sense yep. of it. Yep. So I, I think your advice is, is very valuable. I hope more places around the world start now. By the way, I'm glad you brought this up now because I don't think the timing could have ever been better. Yeah. You've just had the most momentous window of opportunity to change how your country, your local uh, economy um, can become an absolute leader in, uh, in tech innovation. And that is the coronavirus, which showed us that you can work anywhere. You can start a company anywhere. And so all of a sudden the currency of being elbow to elbow with each other and like meeting at coffee shops and, and, on you know uh, University Ave in Palo Alto is less valuable than the fact that if I can work anywhere, yeah, I, I kind of like the weather in uh, in Austin better. Um, I kind of like the lifestyle of being in New York. It's more multivariate versus just tech, tech, tech. Like if you're you're the Maldives, like you know you could start an innovation hub. Absolutely, people want to hang out in the Maldives with their laptop and they can start companies today from there. There's no reason they can't. So I think we've democratized access to the Silicon Valley-esque uh, approach to building companies. Um, and we can create these mini hubs all over the world because the talent doesn't need to go to Silicon Valley. It's still, by the way, number one, it's gonna probably be number one for a very, very, very long time. Absolutely. Can't take anything away from Silicon Valley. But if you have the uh, assembly line of talent, which by the way, starts with education, like I said before, you invest in great universities, uh, teach people the skills needed to become knowledge workers in, uh, in, a, in, a, in an innovation economy. And then you just build like a great standard of living, which many of these countries already have. They're far higher quality standard of living than Silicon Valley. Dude, it sucks to live in Silicon Valley just from a personal perspective. It's like, wake up, work, Go to sleep, do it all over again. And um, that's why a lot of people gravitated to, to San Francisco, down to LA, now all over there, you know, Austin, Miami, et cetera. So that's a big opportunity and countries should absolutely jump all over it and wave the flag like Miami is doing right now, welcoming, you know, tech entrepreneurs and designers and business people to just have a better life living 
in their communities and enable them to build companies there as naturally as they would build an orange uh, farm. All right, so shifting gears here for a minute. You've had an incredible path. We sneakily found out what you're doing next. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? Ooh, great question. Um, so 10 years, I'm 57. Um, I see myself still uh, running Tech Aviv, running the new Tech Aviv Founder Partners Fund. Um, I see myself getting more and more involved in um, efforts to bring entrepreneurship outside of kind of the bubble of the tech world. Um, I think that there's some there's some real golden nuggets of life wisdom to trying to make the world the way you would like it to be that can be applied um, to lots of different for-profit and non-profit industries. Can you give an example of that? That's, that's too interesting of a topic to let it lie as is. So one example would be that um, I don't think that NGOs should spend their time with their hands out asking for money all the time. I think that's a highly inefficient way to underwrite the, the greater good that they're doing. I think that if you teach them how to build a revenue model um, that's deeply aligned with their mission, that could self-sustain what they're doing, um, you could make a massive impact on humanity. Uh, they're just missing the engine, you know what I mean? They've got great cars, but their engines suck. And so um, I want to help them get to where they want to go by using some components of entrepreneurship, uh, lean startup methodologies, et cetera, to, uh, to figure out a way to uh, self-sustain. That's awesome. Noble mission. All right, we're going to cap it off with one last question. What is the most important thing you've learned as an entrepreneur? And asking that with the lens of what would you want people listening to this to hear? We've touched on top parts of it around getting yeah. involved in community. If you have to give someone a nugget who's out there struggling through their first venture right now, what is that lens? What is that perspective? It's very much in line with what I said earlier. Um, get out of the mentality of you always needing help and think about ways that you can help others. You will be shocked what will naturally evolve from you getting into that seat. One simple example of that is that most entrepreneurs, when they go pitch an investor, they think they're being interviewed. Um, and when you go to be interviewed, as if they're doing you a favor by giving you money, you've already lost the conversation, right? No investor wants to invest in a company that really needs their money. You know what I mean? They want to invest in a company that doesn't need their money um, and is doing them a favor, letting them on the cap table. It's a state of mind because it could be the same company, but if you go to that pitch and you, you walk into that pitch as if you're going on a blind date, you know, on a blind date, a good date would be where 
you talk 50% of the time and they talk 50% of the time. They pitch you and you pitch them. And then if there's a match, great. If there isn't, also okay. Important learning, right? If you walk in with that disposition, that you have something to give, you know, you're, you're offering something very valuable and that you want to interview them and understand if they are worthy of being a part of your journey. You will be exuding exactly the right message um, that an investor wants to see. That's one example of just applying this mentality uh, towards raising money. But it applies to everything that has to do with starting a company. And in the earliest days, the biggest mistake that a lot of new entrepreneurs do is just get into a desperation mode. Like, somebody help me. Anybody help me. If I only had help, then I could. Blah, blah, blah. You are a human being who has taken a remarkably bold step of trying to start a company. Statistically, you will fail. That's just data, okay? That's the reality. You're the type of special person who is willing to look beyond the statistical odds in order to chase some dream to start a company and hopefully have some impact in the world. You're a special person. You have a lot to give. And if you internalize that, every conversation you have with an employee, with a partner, with a customer, with an investor, um, is going to be fundamentally different and will set you up for success. Iran, this has been nothing short of inspiring. Thank you for being here today. My pleasure, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very grateful to Yaron for taking the time to share his story with us. Yaron's expertise is a welcome glimpse into what's working in Israel. What's happening in Israel is a fascinating case study for how communities and countries could and should embrace entrepreneurship to improve their economies and societies. If you like what you heard, please look us up with a like or a five-star review, and feel free to share with a friend. You can find me on Twitter at MPD. To hear more of my conversations with innovators, subscribe on YouTube, Facebook, or any other major podcast platform. Just search for Innovation with Mark Peter Davis.